The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. For him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him on his way at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in a desolate place and people were coming to him from every quarter. You may be seated. It's really good to see you all. And good morning to you, those of us that are online. If you're new here, my name is Jared Huffman. I'm on staff here at Restoration Southside, and uh, we're delighted to have you here this morning, and thank you for working your way around uh, the Ironman Triathlon. We'll continue our study of Mark, as you can see, but there's an important turn that I want you to notice that just took place. We've seen Jesus come, and we've seen John the Baptist uh, prepare the way. We've seen Jesus um, begin his public ministry, Jesus be tempted. We've seen Jesus deal with demoniacs, and we've seen Jesus deal with those who are sick. And yet there's something special about this passage that I want you to see. It's that Jesus addresses, for the first time in Mark, shame. Shame. Shame is that whisper in your ears that you know all too well that says, there is something seriously wrong with me. I am on my own. If anybody knew what was in my heart, they would cringe and shun me. And so it's this very beautiful thing where we see Jesus, yes, you can address pain, and yes, you can address suffering, yes, you can address evil, um, but you can address the shame that lives within us. I want us to see that here this morning. The other thing that I want you to notice uh, about the, the, <clears throat> the text this morning is Jesus continues to surprise us. Jesus continues to surprise us. A man that for 2,000 years has been written about and talked about and that Kind of in the back of our head, we know well, and he still does stuff that go, makes us go, what? And we're going to talk about some of those things this morning. So would you pray with me? And let's ask God to bless our study of his word this morning. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? I thank you and I praise you for your Holy Spirit and your word. And I ask that your spirit would be powerfully at work among us. Resurrecting hearts that so badly need to know you. And comforting hearts that do know you but are burdened. 
God, if you don't move, this is just a speech. And so I ask by, because you love to give good gifts to your children, because of the finished work of Christ, I ask that your spirit make us alive today in Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. When I was in seventh grade, one of my soccer buddies, uh, we weren't in our close friendship, but we were buddies from the team. We later became close friends. But his family was going on a family road trip just outside of St. Louis, and they were going on vacation. And they were in a big family van like many of us have. And disastrously, there was a semi that had broken down and hadn't got quite all the way off the road. And so his family came up over a hill on the highway, and there was half of a semi sitting in their lane. And then it ripped off half of their car. This tragedy that struck our city, the sweet family lost several siblings immediately, and the mother passed away immediately. My friend, reflecting on that encounter, all the ambulance noise and all of the, the shouting and the smell of smoke, he looked down and noticed that his femurs were broken. And I don't want to gross you out or make you feel queasy, but he could see that they were broken. And so with all the chaos, each person that gets to him as they're trying to get everybody out of the car and two headed to the hospital, each person that gets to him sees him and says, hey, you're doing great. You look so good. You're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. And they were just trying to comfort him in the way that you comfort somebody who's distressed, but he said it was actually making things worse because he could see his own legs that they were broken, and yet somebody, people kept telling him, nurses and, and techs, they kept telling him, oh, you look great, you're going to be fine, you're okay, you're okay. And he was feeling like, I can tell that something's wrong with me, and y'all won't say it. He finally made it to the emergency room, and the doctor got him up on the table and saw and said, oh my gosh, son, this is going to hurt like heck, but I will not leave your side. In the midst of all the death and tensity around him, he thought, I finally feel some relief. I'm not crazy. Someone looked at my problem and said, whoa, that is a problem. And was honestly going to address it. It's the picture of what we have here is that only this shamed leper knows how bad his life is. And he needs someone to see him to not try and convince him that it's not that bad. And not try and make him feel a little bit more encouraged. But to address the problem that he's struggling with. That's what this text is about. If you wonder to yourself, why doesn't Jesus mean more to me? Why doesn't this story mean more to me? Why can't I care about this more? Maybe it's because you haven't fully understood that you have a problem. That I have a problem. So the solution won't mean anything to you if you don't acknowledge that you have a problem. And our problem might be different than we think it is. We're going to be surprised by Jesus over and over again in this text. 
The solution doesn't mean anything if you don't have a problem. First of all, Jesus surprises by being utterly dependent. Utterly dependent. Would you look in the text with me? It says, early in the morning, Jesus went out to a desolate place to pray. I know we sort of see that there and think, oh, he's kind of doing that so we'll understand how to do our morning devotions. And that's really why that's in there. Jesus doesn't need to pray. He's God. But 25 times in the gospel, it says Jesus went away to pray to his father. 25 times. He says over and over again, I've come to do the will of my father. He's actually going away here in this beautiful moment to show that he needs his father's validation. He needs his father's encouragement. He needs his father's guidance. That he's in need of his dad. And the point isn't lost on us. If Jesus of Nazareth needs to pray, how much more so do we to, do we need to pray? There's this leadership principle that I like that's called aim small, miss small. And so often what we do is we go, yeah, we totally need to pray, and I do feel convicted, Jared. That's it. Tomorrow morning, Monday, I'm going to get up at 4 a.m. and pray for two hours, and I'm going to do that for the rest of my life. And then on the first day, we sleep in. Yes, it's a practice, and you have to practice it. Set small goals and hit them. I'm going to pray once a week. I'm going to pray twice a week. I'm going to pray before I get home and go from my car back into my family. I'm going to sit and pray for a while. Aim small, miss small. But begin the practice of praying, communing. Because when we pray, what we're actually saying is not I'm strong. That's what the evangelical world has mixed up. Oh, you pray? You must be strong. Oh, you must be good because you pray. No, what it's saying is that I'm a mess. I'm full of sin. I'm distracted by suffering. I'm I'm overwhelmed. I'm not up to the task. And so when you feel, looking at your life, the sin, the suffering, the shame, when you feel all those things and you think, I can't do this exactly, you're supposed to feel dependent. Jesus feels dependent upon the Father. We're supposed to learn that neediness and actually foster that neediness. Paul Miller once said, if you don't pray, if you don't pray, you're convinced that time or money or your gifts are ultimately all you need. Time or money or your gifts are ultimately all you need. If Jesus is needy, then we are needy. If Jesus is praying, then we should pray. When we planted this church, some of you all have heard this story, but when we planted this church, uh, Ben and I and Elizabeth and a couple of others went to a conference, a conference to teach you how to plant a church. And we had different speakers. um, And Ben and I had done a ton of work on the front end to kind of come up with these crisp, cool phrases, restoration, south side, experience something different, and outreach and authenticity and sacrifice. And we'd kind of got all our ducks in a row, and we'd done the hard work to kind of um, exegete the culture. What are the culture's idols? And then how can we help address them with the gospel? And we'd done all these things, 
And Richard Pratt, who's the president of Third Mill Ministries and a great preacher and professor, he listened to all of our little, our, our little speeches and our, our little quips. And he said, guys, that's really, really good. You can tell you put a lot of thought into this. We're feeling pretty good about ourselves. And he says, but have you fallen on your face before the living God and begged Him to move? That's where you kind of like turn eye contact away. Like I'm hoping He's looking at Ben and not looking at me. No. We worked on what we could do in this city. How we could say it at this church. What could come through mine and Ben's gifts. And he said to us, have you fallen on your face before the living God and begged Him to move? So Elizabeth, who's on our staff and at our church, she says, guys, at lunch, she says, we are going to go do that. So she puts it on her calendar and we're going to have eight hours of fasting and praying and singing. And I was not looking forward to it. Now we do it twice a year without fail like clockwork. We need it. If I forget by a month or two, the staff will say, hey man, we got to go away and pray. Not because we're strong, but because we get that we're needy and we get that when you pray, God meets those needs. He loves that we show that we're dependent upon Him. Jesus is utterly dependent on the Father. What if when you pray for Him to take away a sin and He doesn't take away? What if when he, you pray for Him to take away a suffering and He doesn't remove it? It's because it's the one single thing that keeps you talking to Him. And so why would He take it away? He wants us to be needy before him to be dependent, even as Jesus was. So we see that Jesus surprises us by being dependent on someone, that we're supposed to acknowledge our dependence. That's why here at Restoration Southside, we say it's okay that you're not okay. That's the reason. I don't know all of the dirty laundry in the room. I know a lot of it. I know mine. I know that there's something wrong with me. And the best thing I can do is admit it in dependence upon God. If getting dependent leads you to God, then those things that cause you to be needy are good things. You see, Jesus needs to pray. But we also see Jesus here relentlessly on mission relentlessly on mission. He's not only utterly dependent on his father, but he's relentlessly focused on his mission. And I want you to see it. So glance down with me. We're going to look together at this section of Mark. He says this. Sorry. Here we go. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, 
for this is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. The sense that you're supposed to have is this, is that Jesus gets up early in the morning and he goes out, doesn't wake anyone up because he wants that time with his dad. He wants to talk to him and be guided by him and be connected to him. But remember the context. He has forced a demoniac, forced a demon out of a person and given them their life back. And then he comes back to grab dinner and Peter's mother-in-law is sick and so he gently takes her by the hand and rises her up and causes her fever to go away immediately. You'd imagine that's a full day. He's tired. He's having a standoff with demons and he's, he's healing the sick. And then people start showing up at the mother-in-law's house. It says the whole town gathers before him. Can you imagine how tired he was? And yet he goes through and it says he heals many diseases and drives out many demons. He's exhausted. And yet, instead of sleeping in, which is what I would have done, he wakes up early to go spend time with his father. And it's as if the disciples finally come to and they go and find him and he's out. He's outside the city. He's out by himself. And they're like, hey, Jesus, we got a good thing going here, man. Our name is getting big. We've got, we've got all these people who are looking for you. They could do the healing and do that. You can drive out the demons. And our, our crowd is getting larger and larger. And Jesus goes, cool, let's get out of town. Let's go somewhere else. There's a couple of things I want you to see. Why does he do that? surprises us that he's that dependent on anyone else and it surprises us that he won't just stick around and do this be the the magic trick guy the miracle man why won't he set up shop in Capernaum there's a couple of reasons one Jesus came for all and so he's not going to let this this Capernaum say this is our miracle man this is our guy team Capernaum he won't do it. He knows that he's come for the least, the little, the lost, the lonely, and he knows that he needs to go out to all the people. And the first thing that we get from that is that any place where the Holy Spirit is at work and Jesus is moving is a place that is constantly thinking outside of itself. Constantly thinking outside of itself. We can't hoard Jesus to ourselves and say, oh man, we love his grace. We love this place. We, we, just, we just want to be in a spiritual high. We just want to feel Jesus instead of move like Jesus does outward over and over again. We try and make Him our thing. We'll get really smart about Him, really committed to Him, really generous with Him, but let's just keep the money in the family. And He's saying, this is not just for Capernaum. This is not just for God's people. We've got to go out. So you see him relentlessly on mission because he won't stay in Capernaum but wants to go further. But there's also something else. He won't be their miracle man. He won't be the guy that they come to when they've got a demon or the guy that they come to when they get sick. And the reason that that is is because he is more concerned for their spiritual life than he is for their physical problems. He's more concerned for their spiritual life than he is for their physical problems. 
Everyone is looking for you, he said to them. Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. Also, this is why I came, that I may preach there also. And he went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues. Well, Jesus, we've got preachers. They're not all that great, but we've got preachers. We need a miracle man. And he says, no. When Jesus sends the demon out of the guy at the synagogue, that guy still dies. When Jesus grabs Peter's mother-in-law hand and rises her up and takes away her fever, Peter's mother-in-law still dies. When Jesus stands, tired as He is, late into the night to send all the demons out of the individuals in the town and heal all of their sicknesses, all of those people still go home and eventually die. And what He's saying is, yes, it's good, I'm the King of kings, I can, as is necessary, bring temporal healing and relief, but I'm not here ultimately for your relief, I'm here for your rescue. And we're just like the disciples. Jesus, we need some money, and if you'll give us some more money, then everything will be better. Jesus, we need you to heal this cancer, this sickness, this COVID, and if you heal this, if you just do this, everything will be better. Jesus, if you will deal with my addiction, if you'll make this sin go away, then really everything will be better. Jesus, if you would, if you would just... Show me what to do with this broken marriage. If you just do that, then everything will be better. And what this passage is saying to us, what you think your biggest problem is not your biggest problem. Finances, sin, suffering, relational difficulty, you're still going to die. So he says... Yes, I will bring healing and relief as is necessary for my walk through earth, but that's not the reason that I came. The reason that I came is to rescue you so that there would one day be no death. Alistair Begg says this, pointed to Revelation 21. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying and pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The things that make you cry, the things that make you die, the things that are worth grieving and mourning or crying, the things of pain, they're all going to go away. The things that you complain with God about that you can't handle anymore, they're going to go away. And it's going to be ecstasy and elation forever. And he's trying to get us to see that real life is looking for the rescuer and not for relief from your circumstances. You may say your biggest problem is that you're a sinner in need of a rescue. But most of us, most of us, 
say that, give lip service, and then we have a real biggest problem in our life. And just like them, Jesus refuses to let them think that he has come only to bring relief when he's come to bring something so much more. Whatever it is you're asking him to set you free from, he may or may not, but you'll still die. And he was concerned about our long term and not just something for the short term. So you see Jesus here surprises us again and again. He surprises us because he's dependent upon his Father, and we too can be freed to be dependent upon his Father. And he's relentless on mission, and that's the mission of preaching the gospel. That yes, he can do miracles and does sometimes, but that's not the reason that he came. It was to preach the gospel, the bigger spiritual healing that all of us need. But lastly, I just want you to see this, and this is just as sweet as it gets, the compassionate with the shamed. The compassionate with the shamed. He's dependent, he's relentless on mission, and he's compassionate with the shamed. Listen to this. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, and said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. And moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. I want you to hear this. Did you hear it in there? Moved with pity. Moved with pity. We know that phrase, we've heard it before. I want you to hear in another context the same phrase, Luke 15. Some of you know the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son is the story that Jesus tells to people who are trusting in their own righteousness. And he tells the story where this son, he's the younger brother, he's kind of a punk, and he says to his dad, I wish you were dead so that I could have my inheritance, but since you just will not go ahead and go die, I want my inheritance now so I can go play. And he goes off and he lives wildly and then ultimately runs out of money and he ends up having to get a job at a, at a pig farm. And as a Jew, that would have been so shameful to be at a pig farm. And then he finally comes to his senses and he says, you know what, even, even my father's hired staff do better than this. I should just go home and be staff. And it says he's going home. Sally Lloyd-Jones says he's walking home practicing his I'm sorry speech. And while the father was still a long way off. Okay, remember that moment? It's one of the most memorable parts of the gospel. This is what it says. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. He felt compassion. The exact same words as moved with pity. So when Jesus sees this man who's lonely and disfigured and smells, and he's 
got no future and no prospects. And when Jesus sees him, he's moved with compassion. When Jesus sees all the people all over the hill that look like sheep, it says he saw the crowds and he was moved with compassion. When Jesus is telling us about the prodigal son and the father seeing his son who's wasted all the money and gone and done sinful things, and when the father sees him, he's what? Moved with compassion. You will never draw near to a God who you think is angrily tapping his foot at you. But the outlandishness of the gospel is that in your suffering and even in your sin, God is moved with compassion for you. With open arms, that's how he feels about you. Even in your sin. Moved with pity, it actually means Jesus felt it deep down in his bowels and his tummy. In leprosy, the reason that this addresses shame, I know it, it's not as if the text is saying he got leprosy because he was so sinful and shamed. It's that leprosy is exposing an external condition that matches an internal condition, meaning people just thought of leprosy as a parable for sin, as one commentator says. An outward visible sign of innermost spiritual corruption. One of the commentators says, if you were a a leper, you were rotting, you were stinking, and you were repulsive. Leviticus says this, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his hang head loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Can you imagine what it was like for these lepers? They have to stay away from everyone. They're becoming more and more repulsive as they're rotting. And even when they do hear someone, how nice it might be to be acknowledged, they would say, unclean, unclean, and people would change to the other side of the road not to look at them. That's how we feel. If we're honest, we say, unclean, unclean, unclean. There's something wrong with me, Jesus. There's something wrong with me. And when you say that, you're so close, so close to finally getting it right. You're supposed to acknowledge that something's wrong with you. If you don't trust in Jesus today, that. I want you to see that it's when you acknowledge unclean, unclean, there's something wrong with me, something that I can't fix. That's what leads him to Jesus' attention. And for those of you that do know Jesus, the problem is, is we get a little better and we start to think I'm not that unclean. Well, guess what? Jesus means less and less to you when you start to think I'm not that unclean. And then amazingly, he touches them. He actually touches a leper. Eight times in Mark, Jesus touches someone to heal them or to notice them. You imagine this guy's missing fingers. This guy is repulsive. And yet Jesus tenderly touches him. Jesus could say, be healed. And he could be healed. But Jesus knows the guy has a deeper problem of loneliness. And so he touches him. We see Jesus' compassion and we see His gentleness in the fact that He touches the untouchable. 
But I want you to see this, this switch. This is why this text is so important in Mark. This is why it goes to the heart of dealing with our shame. Remember, Jesus has dealt with suffering and he's, and he's dealt with demons. But now he's going to deal with shame. If you touch a leper, now you are ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. Jesus gives him what he wants, but he also touches him. He takes what is ugly and he comforts him by drawing near to him. But now he's ceremonially unclean. Sam Alberry says it this way. The two have swapped places. Previously, the leper had been unable to enter towns and had to live in desolation. Now he is back in the community and Jesus is forced to the desolate places. The outsider and the insider have reversed roles. In a sense, Jesus has become contaminated by this man and it is the key for us all. Do you see it? It's an analogy Mark is using at the end of his first chapter that, of something that is small but is actually cosmic. It's what's going to happen in Mark 15 is that Jesus is now the unclean and this one is clean. Jesus is now sent outside the city to Golgotha and this one is sent into the city to experience life and family in a future again. And this, this little picture of it is actually, it's actually something telling of much larger this is what happens. And some of you are finally getting to experience the fact that you're unclean and that you something's wrong with you and it's bigger than your life circumstances. And if that's you, this is what it sounds like to come to Jesus. This is the prayer. I'm unclean, Jesus. I'm unclean. And if you're willing, Lord, and I get the sense that you are, clean me. I put my trust in Jesus. I'm yours and you're mine forever. Amen. And that's what it is. Just like that, the real problem of your life is dealt with and the circumstances of your life, while they may not improve right away, you are confident in a future and in a hope and in a God who will be with you in your circumstances. I'm yours and you're mine forever, God. And those are for those that don't know Jesus. And those that do is we forget that. It's that when He put His healing touch on us, we got His perfect record, perfect righteousness, and we put on Him our contamination, our sin. And we get to live in the community, in the city of God, and He is sent out in Golgotha. The switch has taken place. And friends, the solution of Jesus will mean nothing to you if you don't think you have a problem. It's okay that you're not okay. And the rest of us here, it's okay that you're not okay. Jesus came because you're not okay. To restore you and to make all things new. We'll close here. So He is dependent on His Father. He's relentless on preaching the gospel of rescue and not just relief. And then we see his compassion and power as he touches this person. He feels compassion in his tummy for this person. He touches him when he doesn't have to. And he actually switches places with the ceremonially unclean. 
As many of you know that we had COVID for like three weeks in my house. And we just kept getting each other sick. All seven of us got it. This is like two weeks ago. I don't want you to think I'm still going to contaminate you. But basically, what we tried to do was separate the sick. And so my parents let us use their house, which is nearby to us, and they weren't here. And Aaron went over. She was in charge of the sick house. And I stayed at our house, and I was in charge of the healthy house. And two days later, Carson went to the sick house. And two days later, Cormac went to the sick house. And then ultimately, one by one, we kept dropping well, for our family of seven to not live with each other for three weeks was too much. And so during each day, normally in the morning, they would stay up on my parents' porch, this elevated high porch, and the healthy would come over and stay off of the porch and talk to them from the foot of the stairs. It's probably why all of us got COVID. <laughs> but the idea was we could be together but not get sick. And as we would walk back to the healthy house, Carson would say, hug, hug. And from the bottom of the stairs, I would reach out my arms and we would do a long distance hug where we didn't touch. And of course, you're explaining that to a little person. They don't get it. They want a real hug. And I was like, I do care for you, but I can't get sick. In Christ, we have someone who sees that you are contaminated and comes and puts his hands in your hands and says, I'll get sick so you'll get well. No long-distance hugs in the gospel. Friends, that's what we're offered. A Jesus who is dependent on his Father. A Jesus who will relentless to preach the mission, the, the gospel of God. And a Jesus who feels compassion for his people and touches them to life even though it's going to cost him death. You can draw near to a God that compassionate. No long-distance hugs for you. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, move in your people's hearts. Encourage the depressed and the anxious, the lonely and the left out. Resurrect those who need rescue and not just relief. Imagine our God, instead of speaking a word, and a gentle hand touches us to bring us back to life. We thank you and we praise you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Imagine. Our God, instead of speaking a word, and a gentle hand touches us to bring us back to life. We thank you and we praise you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.